Good morning again, everyone. It is so wonderful to be with you. Merry Christmas. It's so great to have you. If you're visiting with us this morning, if you're joining us online, it's really wonderful to celebrate Jesus together. And we've done that now in song. We're going to do that in song again in a moment. But before we do that, I want to share with you a little bit from God's Word and uh, from the the carol that we're going to sing. We've been doing a series in Christmas called Christmas by Carols, and we've been looking at a number of the different carols that we sing in the season and looking at what they say about the king that we celebrate today. And it's been amazing for me to realize as I've begun to, to do this and research some of the carols, what's been so wonderful is to see how these carols, many of them date back centuries, sometimes even millennia. And so when we sing these carols together this morning, we are joining ourselves with a tradition that predates us by hundreds of years. And we are joining with Christians throughout the ages who have sung these same words to honor and extol our King. And I think that's something that is just incredibly wonderful and beautiful. And so we're going to do that again today. We've done it a little bit already. We're going to do it again, and we're going to sing the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, I'm really excited about that because I'll be honest with you, this is one of my favorite carols. And I couldn't have told you why it was one of my favorite carols. I'm one of those people, I told you before, I love carols. And so it gets to December, and it's carol time. And and I really, I've got about four or five versions of this carol on my playlist because it's just, you know, I really enjoy it. And as I began to do some research into it and like how it was written, I began to discover why I think I love it so much. This carol was written by Charles Wesley, who is one of the two Wesley brothers that founded the Methodist movement right, back in the 1700s. And so Charles, he's quite famous for being the brother that wrote a lot of hymns. So if you know your Christian hymn writing history, you'll know there's like Fanny Crosby at the top. She wrote about 8,000 hymns. And then like just under her is Charles coming in at 6,000 hymns. All right, so if you've ever written a song that's a wonderful effort, you've got a little way to go before you make it into the Hall of Fame. Right? But Charles wrote 6,000 different hymns, and this is one of the most famous hymns that he wrote. He wrote it about a year after his conversion experience. So he'd been following a religious way of life in the Anglican church, and he encountered the Spirit of God on a trip with a bunch of Moravian brethren. And that was a moment that became a transforming experience in his life. And then with his brother, they began to start preaching to the people and the workers in the fields and the Methodist movement was started. Charles wrote a lot of carols and his brother was the big preacher. What Charles does, he took the theology that he drew out of the scriptures and he implanted it into these hymns. And so, I mean, I think it's a wonderful strategy, right? We remember songs so much better than we remember teachings. You're going to leave here today and you might remember 3% of what I said and, you know, that's great. But you'll remember the song. You'll know the song. And every time you sing the song, you get to sing truth. And so that's what Charles did. Almost every line in this carol is drawn directly out of Scripture and references something about who Jesus is and what we're told about Jesus in the Scripture. And so that's really exciting. But it also means it's a little bit like approaching your Christmas table that hopefully you're going to go and sit at later today. Right, And there's, there's a beautiful gammon over there, and then maybe there's a leg of lamb over here, and maybe there's a fillet steak over there, and then there's some roast potatoes, and there's some roast vegetables, and then there's some cauliflower and broccoli, and there's couscous and rice. I don't know what your Christmas table is going to look like. Right? Hopefully it's something like that. And you just think to yourself, man, I don't know if I have a plate that's big enough to put all of this food on, and a stomach that's big enough to contain all of it. So when we look at this carol, I think this carol is a little bit like that. And so you, we could pick one thing. You could be like, you know what? It's Christmas. We've got to just dig into the gammon because, you know, we only eat that at Christmas time and it's just the best thing that's possibly there. 
Or we could look at this, this beautiful table that's before us and we could just take a little bit of each of the dishes. And that's what we're going to do today as we look at this carol. We're going to just pick and, and look at each piece of the dish and enjoy the beauty that it, that it has for us. So that's, that's uh, without any further ado, let's jump into verse 1 of the carol then. It goes like this. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim that Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then we sing the refrain, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Shirley opened our service this morning with a reading from Luke chapter 2. And that is the exact place that this carol is set in. Right, that's this, this iconic scene. You've got a couple of shepherds. They're sitting on the hill. They're minding their own business. They're doing their thing. It's dark. They're just hanging out. And suddenly the heavens open. An angel appears before them. And he says, Luke says this, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I give you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared behind the angel. And they were praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the way our carol opens, and it's this entreaty to give glory to Jesus, this newly born king. And each time we sing the refrain, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king, it brings us back to this moment where the angelic choir sung out over the shepherds in a night in Bethlehem. I mean, that must have been quite something to see. I don't know how many of you have ever, have you ever, anyone ever been shopping in a mall and a flash mob appeared? Alright, does anyone know what a flash mob is? It's a thing that used to happen about five years ago. This is like the divine angelic flash mob. You're just, you're just doing your thing, you're having a normal day at work, and suddenly the sky opens and hundreds of angels begin singing. I mean, that has got to be incredible. And every time we sing this carol, it's this opportunity for us to, to be placed back into that space, into that setting, with this chorus of angelic voices singing out the praise to God. And as we continue through the carol, you're going to see that Charles gives us more and more reasons for why we need to praise Jesus and give him glory. And the first, the very first reason is contained in the same passage that the carol is set in in Luke chapter 2. And it's the promise that there will be peace on earth. This is the promise that one day the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. One day all sin and iniquity will cease and there will be perfect peace that reigns among the people of God. One day we won't have to have the army that goes out to guard all the power stations around the country because there will be no one looking to sabotage things. Right? That's the promise of peace on earth that we await in Jesus. It's a hope we look forward to in our broken and crumbling worlds. And it's followed by the means to that hope. It's the mercy of God that leads to the reconciliation between man and God. See, Charles leads us in giving glory to Jesus because the hope of perfect peace is now available to us because of the loving mercy of God. Sin is the root of all the problems that exist in our worlds. 
At every problem's root is sin. And since the beginning, since the fall, sin has been the barrier that has kept man separated from God. If you go back into the beginning of your Bible, in the first few chapters of Genesis, you will see man and man was with God in, in the garden. Adam and Eve were with God. They were walking with him. Then there was sin. And after sin, they were expelled from the garden. And an angel was set to guard the entrance with a flaming sword. And that was symbolic of the fact that from that point on, there was now a permanent barrier that was erected between man and the presence of God. We were no longer able to enter into, to access the presence of God. Sin kept us out of it. God cannot endure the presence of sin. And that beautiful peace that used to exist between God and man at the beginning was shattered. But now, because Jesus has been born among us, he has come to atone for that sin, to pay the price for that sin, to accept the punishment that we should have received and allow us to experience just the mercy of God. And so Charles says, guys, this is a cause for great joy. This is a real reason to celebrate. It's great to not have load shedding today. I'm very excited about that. I am much, much more excited that I now no longer have to pay the price for my sin because of what Jesus has done for me. And then Charles Wesley said, but it's not just joy for you. It's not just joy for us as the individual. But he says, joy for all of you nations rise. Because in Jesus, the promise of salvation, which had first been for the Jewish nation, and there was a promise that, that God was going to use the Jewish nation as a means of his salvation. And so they were given it. And it was accessible to the world, but it was hard to access. You had to travel to Jerusalem. You had to participate in rites that took place at the temple. You had to convert to Judaism. It wasn't an easy way to get saved. And yet now, in Jesus, that promise of salvation has been opened up to all nations of the world, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Everyone is able to know the presence of God again because of the work of Jesus. And so all people everywhere are invited, Charles says, to join in celebrating the triumph of the skies or the triumph of the heavens. And it's this illusion, this line alludes to this victory that has been won in the great and eternal battle that has existed between God and the spiritual forces of evil that exist in our world. In the coming of Christ, the the future work of Christ is anticipated and foreseen. And so when all what all the creation has been longing for, for centuries upon centuries, is now just 30 short years away. And the triumph is spoken about by Paul in his letter to the Colossian church. He says this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, and he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and then condemned us. And he's taken that away. He's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Friends, that is the triumph of the skies that we sing about when we sing that line. It is that moment where Jesus on the cross overcame all the powers of sin and darkness, of Satan and his minions, and he defeated them once and for all. The cross was the definitive moment where Satan began to lose the battle. 
Because before the cross, God's law was humanity's only way of being declared righteous before God. And yet, what happened is when we saw the law, what it did is it caused a, like. The, the sinful part of us just desired to break it. So when you're told you should not covet something, then there's a little part of you that goes, but I want that thing. Right? So every time God gave us his law to tell us what was righteous, but the sin in us then rose up and tried to claim those things that we weren't given or called to. And so we could never perfectly fulfill God's law, and we would always fall short of it, and we would always, there would always be sin in our life, and we would never be able to stand righteous before God. But on the cross, a new way of righteousness was made available by faith in Christ. By turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I can't, but you did. Won't you release your forgiveness to me? And because of this new way of righteousness before God, the battle against Satan and his minions turned. Their weapons were taken away. They were disarmed. They no longer have the same weapons of condemnation that they used to have against us. The the same weapons of bondage that used to hold us entrapped and enslaved to sin. Those things have been taken away because Jesus has paid the price on the cross. And salvation is now freely attainable to those who would seek it. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over the forces of darkness. And so as we look at his birth, we join in the triumph of heaven because Jesus himself has come and that victory was then assured and has now happened. That's what's behind verse 1. And then we join into verse 2. And Charles writes, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. See, verse 2 begins differently to verse 1. And we start in verse 1, we start at the birth of Jesus. and verse 2, we jump to his eternal reality. And as Charles does this, he's actually going to take us into a deep dive into uncovering the fullness of who Jesus is. And so in in verse 1, we started in the beginning of the New Testament, so the beginning of the Gospels. And verse 2 jumps us all the way to the end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, where we are invited to see the heavenly reality as Jesus exists in heaven. John sets the scene for us in Revelation. If you read Revelation chapter 4, Right, The Father is seated on this glorious throne. There's a rainbow around him. Lightning is flashing, coming out from the throne. Thunder is booming. The elders and the living creatures are all bowing down and worshiping the Father who sits on the throne. And as he sits there in his right hand, he holds the scroll. And into that scene walks Jesus as the Lamb of God. And we discover that he is the only one in the presence of heaven that is able to take the scroll from the Father and to open it. And to read its contents. And when he does so, John describes what happens next in Revelation chapter 5. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, in verse 1, we have the snapshot of the heavenly choir worshipping Jesus above the shepherds. But in verse 2, Charles takes us to the fullness of the heavenly reality that exists all the time, where Christ is adored in the highest heavens. He is honored and acknowledged as the everlasting Lord, the only one who is worthy. And yet even from that glory, at the right time, Jesus came to earth, humbling himself, taking on the mantle of human flesh, And so this third line in the verse, it juxtaposes for us so beautifully the eternal glory that is Jesus' by right, that he experiences all the time in heaven, to him coming humbly as a man. And Charles takes, draws from Paul's words in Galatians chapter 4 and the promise in Isaiah chapter 7, and he knits them beautifully together. Paul writes in Galatians 4, he says, When the right time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. And Isaiah writes and says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. See, in God's perfect timing, the eternal, glorious Christ came and made himself one with us. And yet he came in a way that was divine. He came through a miracle so that all would know this little boy that was born in a manger is not simply a boy, but is very God himself. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And then Charles begins to develop that a little further. And he references the doctrine of the Trinity. It's why he uses the word Godhead, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And he locates that in the words of the Apostle John in the first chapter of his gospel. Where John writes, and he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as we recognize this great truth, the, the Savior, Christ, Emmanuel, God who has come to be with us, Charles invites us to action. He calls us to hail. It's an old word. It means to publicly praise or extol someone. It means to unashamedly sing out the virtues and the glory of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Isn't it convenient that the call to hail Jesus is located in a song that allows us to do that so freely? That's how verse 2 draws to a close, and it launches directly into verse 3 where he says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. See, verse 3 flows so beautifully from verse 2. We've just been exhorted to hail Jesus as Christ Emmanuel. Now Charles entreats us to continue praising Jesus. And he then adds a list of reasons for why we can and should continue to praise Jesus. And each of them comes out of Scripture. So his first stopping point is to hail Jesus because he is the Prince of Peace. And Shirley again read the scripture for us earlier. It's one of the most famous scriptures. It's one of the ones we speak of most often when it comes to Christmas. From Isaiah chapter 9. It's this promise that God gave to his people. He said, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We sang it earlier. And then it carries on. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. See, we can praise Jesus because he will be our new ruler, our prince of peace, and because the greatness of his government and peace will not end. Once Jesus establishes his divine kingdom here on earth, his government will never end, and the peace of his reign will never end. It's a hope that we hold to as God's people. Jesus has come. The kingdom has been inaugurated. He has kind of come again, and he is going to establish his rule perfectly. And that rule will never end. And his perfect peace will reign forevermore. But Charles is not content to stop there. There are more reasons for us to praise Jesus. And so he moves to a prophecy that comes from the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. In Malachi 4, chapter verse 2. It says this, for, for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You might be used to singing this line where the word sun is translated S-O-N instead of S-U-N. And that's, that's really appropriate because this is a prophecy about Jesus. But it's, it loses the picture that was given in the book of Malachi where, where God metaphorically referred to Jesus coming and he, he promised his people who were living in, in a difficult time and space. He said there is going to be a day that the Lord is going to come and he's going to put an end to evil. And those who are committing and committed evil, they're going to be burnt up. But those who feared the Lord, the sun of righteousness would rise and drive out the darkness of sin and evil. I remember when I was young, we used to do this thing on New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day where you would stay up to watch the sunrise. I'm now far too old to engage in that foolishness. So we live in Cape Town. You can watch the sunrise at 8 o'clock in winter. It's much easier. There's no need to do it at 4.30 in the morning. But if you ever have done that, you'll know how dark it is before the dawn. And as the sun begins to rise, the sky begins to lighten and it starts first going a slight gray and then slowly the fullness of the light of the sun. And when that sun peaks over the edge of the mountains, suddenly the light is made full and complete. And that's the picture that Malachi is drawing us to. It's the picture God wants us to see of who Jesus is. Jesus is going to rise like the sun. And the light of his light is going to drive out the darkness of sin and decay that exists in our world and in our lives. And as his people, we're going to be able to bask in the healing rays of his light. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? It's also captured by John in the beginning of his gospel where John writes, he says, In him was life, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Shine, so continuous. Charles starts verse 3 by calling us to praise and to extol Jesus for these virtues. He says he is our new ruler, he's our prince of peace, he's come down from heaven, and he's going to set up his government. He comes like the sun who drives out the darkness of sin. He is the Messiah who gives life to all who come to him. And the light of his presence brings healing to those who are broken and hurting. These are wonderful reasons to praise our king. But we're only halfway through. The verse carries on. And this time it comes from the humility of Jesus. So having just seen the wonderful promises that are contained in him, Charles now draws us back to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes and he says, Though he, though Jesus, was God, 
He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, something to hold on to. Jesus, though he is in every way and always has been and always will be holy and completely God, he chose to lay aside the fullness of his glory and to be born simply like one of us as a man. When Jesus came to earth, when God came to earth, he didn't come with flashing lightning, with peals of thunder. He didn't come with and the resplendent king, sort of cloaked in glory and majesty. There was no halo around his head. You know, Isaiah prophesies about how Jesus would be, and he says in chapter 53, he says, there is nothing beautiful or majestic about Jesus' appearance. Nothing that would even attract us to him. He came in the most vulnerable and humble way possible. There is no being more vulnerable in this world than a little baby. And that's how Jesus entered this world. That is how God entered this world. As a little child, as a little baby boy, born in an animal's manger. But Charles is not just simply for his great humility, for which we should praise him, but also because of what his birth is now going to ultimately accomplish for us. And the last three lines of the verse spell this out so beautifully for us. He tells us that Jesus was born so that the finality of death would cease. Jesus was born so that we would be raised from death and have new bodies that would live forever. And Jesus was born so that we would be able to be born again and filled with the Spirit and freed from the power of sin and death that reigns in our bodies. And each of these statements comes from Scripture. In John 11, Jesus says to Martha, Don't you know, Martha, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that he said, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then he goes on to explain what our new bodies will look like and how they will be imperishable. In John chapter 3, Jesus explains to Nicodemus how each of us needs to be born again in Christ. He says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. In three simple lines, Charles has taken and summarized the fullness of our Christian hope. The hope that there is life after this one. The hope that in that life we will have new and perfect bodies that won't be frail or damaged or broken in any way. And the hope that there will be death to the sin that reigns in our body and we will be filled with the Spirit and be like God. What wonderful reasons to praise Jesus our Savior. Friends, that is what today is all about. That is what Christmas is all about. That's why we are here together this morning. It's why we're going to eat meals later and exchange gifts because it is about Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. Amen. It's the turning point in history when the blackness of sin was confronted by the incredible light of Christ. And Jesus came once and for all to put right the hopeless state of mankind and to redeem us back to himself. That's what Christmas is about. That is the feast that Charles Wesley wrote for us 300 years ago in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So I'm going to ask the team if they'll come up and join me on the stage. And we're going to sing that together and just proclaim the wonderful things that Jesus has done for us.